if this morning you could receive the greatest strength that is offered to you that the universe could provide, do you think you'd be interested? What if this morning I could help all of us tap into the most life-transforming, powerful resource in human history? This is not some gimmick or game. I'm, I'm dead serious. What if I could offer to you this morning unbelievable strength, power. Do you think you'd want it? It's a lot of responsibility to think if you had something like that. Furthermore, I'd want you to think some of the implications before you answer the question. Do you really want this sort of power or strength? It could overwhelm you. You might be thinking, you know, I've got some needs in my life. I've been feeling a little depressed. I have an addiction or habit I can't break. I've felt paralyzed from anxiety, and on and on we could go. I, I could use some help or some strength, some outside source of power. But maybe what you're looking for, if that's you, is just a boost to help you get over the hump. That's not what I'm offering. That's not what I'm suggesting. I'm suggesting that what we have in God's Word is something much more than a little boost for your week. A source of strength and power that is the most powerful source in the entire universe. But you need to realize it would change absolutely everything, not just help you with a little struggle here or there. It, it definitely does that. But if I deliver on what I'm suggesting, then you need to come to terms with this is something. It's significant. You would never be the same again. You'd be radically transformed. So, do you think you'd want it? Do you think you'd be interested in this morning receiving unbelievable strength to get through anything? If you take me up on this offer today, I can guarantee you from the Word of God, you will not be let down or disappointed. If you really are desiring and seeking help from God in the way that He provides, not the way you want Him to provide, but how He provides strength and power. It will not disappoint. So let's turn to Revelation chapter 3 and continue our study through these two chapters of Revelation 2 and 3. If you have one of the black Bibles, that can be found on page 1029. 1029. If you've not been with us, we've been looking at what are called the seven letters to the churches in Asia Minor, which would have been what is now modern-day Turkey. So if you think of your map, think of the Mediterranean Sea, just on the east side of the Mediterranean Sea is where Turkey is today. And so all these little churches, 
would have been scattered around a postal route, and these letters would have been first given to the closest in the postal route from where John sent them because he was on the island of Patmos. If you look up where Patmos is in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, and then he sends the letter, Ephesus would have been the first place. And so Ephesus gets the first reading of this letter, and it's a book and a letter. There's a letter addressed to Ephesus, these few words in chapters two, chapter 2, 1 through 7, and then the next church, and then the next church, but then the whole book would have been read, and they would have passed it on to the next. And so we're following that journey around to all those churches and taking each one, one at a time. So I'm going to read the passage. We're going to be looking at chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, and the church in Sardis. Verse 1, says, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, in case it wasn't obvious to you, I'm going to use three questions to help you understand the greatest power and source in the entire universe that's offered to us in this passage. Question number one will be, what is it? What what is the greatest source? Second, what does it do if, if I have this power and strength? What do I do with it? How does this help me? And number three, how do I get it? So what is it? What does it do? And then if after those two, you think, okay, I I want this. I want this for me. How do you get it and keep it? Question number one, what is the greatest source and power in the universe offered to us? Each of these letters begins with a consistent pattern. And if you've not been here every week, then you wouldn't maybe catch this. But for those of you that have, you would have noticed that the letters begin with these words, to the angel of the church in, and then fill in the blank for the church. Then notice after that it says, write these things. And then after that there is a sentence about who this person that's giving the letter and speaking, the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, some description about him. And every time there's a description about him, it correlates with something very relevant, pertinent, and applicable to the church that historically existed. So a real 2,000 years ago, there were churches in all of these places. We have documents in history. This is not just make-believe, fairy tale stuff. And something that's being described about Jesus applies very 
specifically to the things going on in the church. So for the first letter we saw in Ephesus, to him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. That was relevant because he was going to tell them, you're going to lose your lampstand. I'm the one who has the lampstands, and if you don't know, the lampstands are just a symbol for the church. So he says, I hold the churches in my hand, and you, if you do not repent of lacking to love others, start pursuing truth and love, if you don't do that, I'm going to you're going to lose your lampstand. In the second letter, we see that the church in Smyrna is going to face death. So he says to the words of he who died and then came back to life. That's relevant to them. The one who's speaking to you, he faced death. But guess what? He conquered death. Maybe you want to listen to a guy that's defeated death, especially when he says you're going to face death. And I want you to be faithful in the face of it. Look at the next letter, the church in Pergamum, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. It's talking about the authority of his word that comes out like a sword. He doesn't do battle with an actual military sword. He does battle in the world with his word. So it's like a sharp two-edged sword piercing hearts. And he says, if you do not teach those who have been led astray by false teaching, if you don't speak those words of truth, then I will come and wage war with them with the sword coming out of my mouth. That's to the letter in Pergamum. And then last week, we saw that Jesus said that he is the one who has feet like burnished bronze. And the city in Thyatira was all about making bronze. They had labor unions all centered around how they were going to make this bronze, and then they would meet together in these labor meetings, and then they would have orgies together, and they would sacrifice foods to idols, worship, false gods. And he says, church, you're going to have nothing to do with those things. And if you want to join those labor unions and work with all those bronze workers, well, guess what? The one who has feet like bronze will come trample you in judgment. You see how each of these letters has a relevant introduction. There's a pattern here. So when we get to chapter 3, verse 1, don't be surprised that there is a poignant, huge point for us to take away. And I think it answers the question for us of what the greatest source and power in the entire universe is. So look at chapter 3, verse 1. The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. And none of you are going, Woo, that was good. That helped. But read the next line. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. That's the context. What's going on in the church in Sardis? They have the name, that's the word that's used all throughout this letter, actually, multiple times, the name of being alive, the reputation of being a lively, spirit-filled church. But when you keep reading in verse 3, it seems like, or verse 2, that is, their works are now incomplete. Maybe the idea is that they started out well as a church. They gained a reputation of being full of love and truth and caring for their community and loving one another, etc., etc. They were a living, breathing, vibrant community of followers of Jesus. They started the race well, and then they got tired. So he mixes metaphors and says, 
you've gotten so tired, you're sleeping, and you've not finished your race. Your works are incomplete. Notice what he says there, wake up. So are they literally dead? No, this is metaphorical, symbolic language. You are spiritually dead. Your church used to be alive. You used to have that reputation, but that's not the reality anymore. Those would be sobering words, wouldn't they? Could you imagine the pastor receiving the letter from the postal route and getting up and reading, all right, church in Sardis, we're up next. Here's what Jesus himself has said to us. Like, this is going to be awesome. And they're puffing their chest because they think that they're something special as a church. They've got this reputation. You're dead. You're not alive. In a lot of these different letters, Jesus will say commendations of things that they're doing well. You will find almost nothing in this letter of commendation. Oh, this is what you're doing well. I know your works, and I know that your works are dead. Feel that. Feel the weight of Jesus saying that to a church. Could you imagine if you at embassy were sitting here and you thought, you know, I think we're doing pretty well, and then Jesus said, no, you're not. You're fooling yourself. So what do you do if you're a dead church? You you need some help. You're on life support, it seems like. Notice the language here when he says, strengthen what remains. There's, There's like a little breath of life. They're on their deathbed. They're almost just about dead, but there's a little bit. Notice too, he says down in verse four, you still have a few names. So there's that word name again. So there's a few that, that really do believe. A small breath of life. Maybe one or two or a small handful. But overall, the church is primarily a group of spiritually dead people. So now those words become extremely important. The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, the seven stars is really easy. What's the seven stars? Well, at this point, if you're reading in the letter, there's the assumption that you've already read chapter one. So let's look back at chapter one and let's see in verse 20, he gives us the answer. As for the mystery of the seven stars, yeah, I was kind of wondering, what is that? In my right hand, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And you notice that each letter begins with, and to the angel of the church in. So the seven stars, each of them represent the angel of the church in. The word is angelos. It means angel every time in John's gospel. But the word angelos is also used in Greek to refer to messengers or pastors. So it could be that the seven stars are the seven pastors of these seven churches. They're the messengers that are sending the letter. I think the best case scenario is that it's just a metaphor talking about the actual church from its heavenly counterpart. So there's the earthly church in Sardis, the ecclesia, the gathering, and then there's the heavenly counterpart, how heaven and earth are one, and so therefore there is an angel, a representative symbolic church. That might sound strange to you, but that's because maybe you're not used to reading prophetic literature, and so I think he's just using that as a metaphor. 
Either way, you got three different options, and you can use any of them. That's what the seven stars are. Now, let's ask the other question. What are the seven spirits of God? Anybody starting to trip out a little bit? Like, I never knew there were seven spirits of God. I thought there was just one spirit, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, not the seven spirits, plural. It is plural. There are seven spirits in this text. So now we've got to do a little work here. What do those seven spirits refer to? And how does that answer our question about this power? Look back at chapter 1 again. In verse 4, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from Him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before His throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. Christians, all through history, in the broadest sense of the word Christian, have believed in what is called a Trinitarian view of God, meaning that God has three distinct persons, but He is one in His essence. Where do we get that idea from? Passages like this. The one who is and who was and his, who is to come. It's the language of God the Father. Then you have the language of the Spirit. Now there's again seven of them, which is strange to our ears. We're not used to seeing that. And then finally you have Jesus Christ. So you have the Father, you have the Spirit, and you have Jesus Christ. There's Trinitarian biblical example right there for you. The idea is not to try and explain how all that works. It's telling you that that's just the reality of who God is. He is the Father who always was eternally. He is the Son who is the ruler, and He is the seven spirits. Turn to chapter 4. You're going to see this again. Chapter 4 is going to show you in verse 5, a throne room scene. We get a, a view. You guys ever watched uh, the movie Wizard of Oz? You know the movie Wizard of Oz? Chapter 4 is that moment in the movie The Wizard of Oz where you see behind the great Oz's curtain and you find out that, oh man, it's just some guy pushing buttons and it's a big, big letdown. Here, chapter 4, is you get to see behind the curtain a picture of who God is and His heavenly throne, and you do not get let down. It is glorious. Read the whole chapter sometime. You will not be disappointed. But in verse 5, notice what's before the throne. There are flashes of lightning, there are rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. There it is again. And once more in chapter 5, verse 6, and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain and with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Have you noticed that he's not consistent here? Like, so what, what is it? Is it torches? Is it horns? Is it flames? Is it seven? Is it one? I'm so confused. Let's bring some light, some clarity here. Seven 
is the number of days that we see in creation in Genesis chapter 1. It has for the longest of times been a symbol of completion because on the seventh day, the Lord completed creation and so it was done, it was finished. So seven is a symbol of completion. Now insert that idea, not into a number seven, but into the symbol of seven because all through Revelation, numbers mean something. They're metaphorical symbols. I think almost without exception, as far as I can tell as I've read it. So here, insert in the idea, Jesus has the seven spirits. Jesus has the complete spirit. Jesus has the fullness of the Holy Spirit upon him. Jesus, want some more Holy Spirit? Sorry, I'm tapped out. I am full. Can't can't get any more spirit than I already have. I have the complete fullness of God's spirit resting on me. That's what Jesus is saying in the introduction to chapter 3, verse 1. Now, that's a lot of work for us to get to this one point. Are you seeing what I'm saying here is the most powerful resource for you that's being offered? There's a church that exists, existed. It is dead. It needs life. It needs CPR. It needs something. And Jesus says, guess what I have? I have the fullness of God's Spirit. And I'm holding you in my hand. So I have the resource that you need. It is the Holy Spirit. Do you want it? That's our first question. What is this source of strength and power that can raise dead people to life? It's the Holy Spirit. Now, some of you, just before we move on to our second question, we need to make sure we clarify here, the Holy Spirit is a person. It is the personal, invisible presence of God. The personal, invisible presence of God. That's what the Holy Spirit is. Is distinct from the Father, it is distinct from the Son, but they all work harmoniously together in creation and redemption and all through the Scriptures as one essence, one God. So when the Spirit's doing something, God's doing something. When the Father's doing something, by the power of the Holy Spirit, they're all doing it together. That's how the Bible talks. It sounds confusing. Three equals one. No, it's not a math equation. It's biblical metaphorical language. It's hard to try and wrap your mind around God, so don't try and make it sound easy not supposed to be. So please refrain from using language of the Holy Spirit as the it or the thing. Yeah, I want that thing you were talking about. It's not a thing. It's not an it. We should stop saying then, even in my own sermon, well, what is it? It's not an it. It's a who. Do you want him? That's what the source of strength is. It's a him. It's a person. Do you want the presence of God, a personal presence to come upon you? That's what I'm asking. It's not Star Wars, and there's forces of light and darkness and dualism between them. No, there is the Spirit of God, and it is the most powerful thing in all the universe. So that brings us to question number two. Okay, well, what does it do if you say it's so powerful? What does the Holy Spirit do? He creates and He sustains life, which is exactly what the church in Sardis needs because, as I mentioned, they're dead. 
They need to strengthen what little bit of life they have. They need the fan, flame, the flame fanned. They need the Holy Spirit. Where's the first time the Holy Spirit appears in Scripture? It's not the New Testament. It's the first couple sentences of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and without void. And the Spirit, the Ruach is the Hebrew word, it hovers over the face of the seas, the deep. Do you know what God's trying to tell you from the first words of Scripture? I created all of the universe formed it, made it, everything you see, by my Spirit. Read Psalm 33. Out of the breath of my mouth, stars came into existence. That word is ruach because it literally means breath. It's a word that Hebrew people would have already known, already been established. It's just literally the word like I'm breathing right now. (sighs) Might smell good or bad, I don't know. But that's what we're talking about. It's breath, the breath of God. Do you need breath to live? Do you see how helpful choosing that word instead of creating another word is for you to wrap your mind around? So what is the Holy Spirit? What does it do? It gives life. The same way that you need breath to live. Where did that breath come from? Well, it came from my lungs, Pastor Phil. Who's sustaining your lungs? Well, well, I am. Yeah? How often do you think about breathing? Never. (laughs) Till like right now. Oh, I'm breathing. Ruach. If you're a Jewish person, you would have known that this word means breath. It means to breathe life into something. You would have known that it also could be used to talk about the wind. Invisible powerful, life-giving, transforming realities. That's what ruach is. So sometimes it means breath. Sometimes it means wind. Sometimes it means ideas. You know, our English word, I think, captures this quite well. Have you ever been inspired before? You had an idea. I felt inspired by your message this morning, Pastor Phil. Well, where did that come from? Your inspiration. What did, break that word down. Something from the outside came in, and it's in spirit. The spirit came in. So when God inspires, it's his spirit coming on you, and he's giving you ideas, thoughts, visions, dreams. It's an invisible reality of God's very presence coming onto your mind, your heart, your whole being. In fact, you're unable to exist without his spirit. So I want us to turn briefly to Ezekiel 36 and 37 as an illustration of this point. It's one of the most awesome passages in all of the Old Testament. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 22 and following. Ezekiel says, Israel, you have been unholy. You have profaned my name among all the nations. So what am I going to do about it? 
This is God speaking through the prophet Ezekiel. He says in verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. Verse 26, and I will give you a new heart and a new ruach, a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my ruach, my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. In Ezekiel 36, God promises his sinful people that the way to overcome your sin is to have God's spirit to actually come in you. He's going to breathe life into you. He's going to blow his wind of his power into you. He's going to give you new ideas and values and dreams. He's not just going to help you overcome your current obstacles. He's going to give you new obstacles because you didn't even see that you had them, like sin, for example. Oh, I didn't even realize this was an obstacle. Now I hate this. That's what his spirit does. And so to follow that up, he gives this amazing picture in chapter 37. Ten times the word ruach is used, and they're not all the same meaning, so follow along in chapter 37. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit, ruach, number one. He brought me out in the spirit of the Lord. So the spirit here is guiding the prophet to a vision in the middle of a valley, and it was full of bones. In verse 2, it says, He led me around among these bones, and behold, there were many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry, meaning they had been there for a long time. The animals had plucked them clean, and the sun had beaten down on them, and they were very dry, dead bones. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord, you know. The answer should be no. Why would bones all of a sudden start living again? Verse 4, then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause ruach to enter you. And you shall live. Because nobody can live without the Spirit, the Ruach of God, giving them breath to live. Verse 6, And then I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and I will put Ruach in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Verse 7, So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no Ruach in them. So you've got these bodies that are now standing up, They have skin and they have flesh, but they have no life in them. Verse 9, then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. This is prophesy to the Ruach. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the Ruach, thus says the Lord God, come from the four Ruachs. There it is again, and this time it's winds. Bring the winds, the power of God upon them. O Ruach, Ruach on these slain, that they may live. I mean, could you imagine reading that in Hebrew? Come from the four Ruachs, O Ruach, and Ruach on these slain, that they may live. It's the same word, but it each means different things. 
I want the powerful wind of God to come upon them. I want them to breathe again, and I'm going to put my breath and life in these so that they will live again. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and then the Ruach came into them, and then they lived, and they stood on their feet, and an exceedingly great army was now before him. Then he said to me, Son of man, those bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up, and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore, prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God. Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and I raise you from your graves, O people. I will put my Ruach within you and, I, and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land and then you will know that I am the Lord and I have spoken and I will do what it, I will do it, declares the Lord. Do you see what's happening? If you know anything about Ezekiel, they have... The people of Israel are not just sinful, they're in exile. They're in exile because of their sin. And he promises the Holy Spirit, and then he gives them this vision. This is what the Spirit of God will do. It will bring new life to you. Get this picture of a valley of dry bones, and I'm going to raise up an army of people. And so if you think all hope is lost, it is because you are doubting in the power of the Spirit of God. That's exactly what this passage is about. And that passage is for you and for me today. If you, my friend, are doubting in the Spirit of God and you're saying, I need some help. I'm struggling here. I don't have any hope. I am hopeless. Set your gaze on the Spirit of God who gives life and breath and everything that exists. You're breathing because He's allowing you to breathe. There is no mountain too great, no obstacle too big, not even death itself. God, who raised Jesus from the dead, dwells in you. And if he raised him from the dead, will he not also give the Spirit to dwell inside of you? That's Romans chapter 8. The Spirit creates, sustains life. The Spirit purifies, cleanses, and emboldens, transforms his people to new creatures. You see that in our text, Revelation chapter 3? He expects them to look different and not live like the rest of the world. He says that you had life, but now you have lost a lot of that life and fervor. So I need you to strengthen what remains. I need you to wake up. I need you to repent. Those that need no repentance are the faithful names, the faithful few in Sardis in verse 4. And notice what they look like. They're soiled garments. They do not have soiled garments, that is. They are walking with me. They're in fellowship with Jesus by keeping in step with the Holy Spirit. They are worthy. Do you see what the Spirit of God does? He makes people worthy. He cleanses them from all defilement and uncleanliness. He gives them the boldness to confess the name of Jesus. You see that in verse 5. I will confess your name before the Father. It's very reminiscent of the words of Jesus. And he says, if anyone denies me, I will deny them before the Father. If you acknowledge and you confess the name of Jesus here on earth, I will confess your name to the Father. I think that's exactly what's being referred to here. So the faithful few are the ones who are worthy, who have been cleansed, who have been purified by the power of the Holy Spirit. They're the ones that are... In this world where everybody is anti-Christian, Sardis, they're staying faithful. Even when the rest of the church around them isn't going with the faithful flow. 
They're standing firm. These faithful few are. And they're confessing, they're professing the name of Jesus because the Spirit of God gives boldness to people. Read the book of Acts and notice how many times it says they prayed and then the Spirit of God came upon them and they were bold and they preached with boldness. These faithful few were bold. They were morally upright. You see, this is what I'm trying to say when I said, if you just want a little help this morning to kind of add Jesus to your car, like, yeah, why don't you ride in? I need a, a driver and a backseat driver, or, or maybe I'll give you the front seat, Jesus. And, you know, I want you to help me on the way. Jesus does not want to ride in your car going the direction that you've already been going. Jesus wants to give you a whole new car. It's called the Holy Spirit. And he wants you to walk with him. A hard, long road that often inquires, requires much suffering. And if you think that it's just a matter of, well, I need a little boost. That's what Spirit provides, a little boost. I mean, He provides so much more than that. So this is why at Embassy Church, we believe that if you call yourself a Christian, you take on the name of Christian. You notice that language here in this, this text, this letter. The name, the reputation. I'm a Christian. Do you call yourself a Christian? If you do, we expect as a church that you will not be perfect, but that if you're a Christian, all of you have received God's Spirit upon you, and you look like this to some degree in slow steps of growing faithfulness. You don't just start out strong and then wither away and just go to sleep on Christianity. It's all in or all out, and it's all in or all out perseveringly over the course of a long course of your whole life. So then we expect then, if you're going to call yourself a Christian, that you look like a Christian, somebody changed by the Holy Spirit. So let me illustrate this. Let's imagine on my way to church this morning, I get a flat tire. Go out and change the flat tire like, man, I got a bad foot. I got a cold. I got a flat tire. This just was a terrible weekend. And I go and I change the flat tire and I wasn't paying attention and some car runs me over. There's a big truck. And I come here this morning, say, guys, you'll never believe the morning I just had. I just got run over by a semi-truck. But it's okay, I just got the boot on and I'm all set. None of you are gonna believe me. None of you are gonna believe Phil was not run over by a truck. He was not toppled over by a semi-truck going 50 miles an hour on the side of the road changing a tire. That story does not make any sense. He would be dead. That force of the truck is much greater. No, how big you think I look on this stage or how tall, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lose that battle. Ten million times more powerful than a semi-truck is the power of the Holy Spirit who speaks stars into existence. And if you're saying, I'm a Christian, and the Spirit of God has come upon me, but you look like everybody else in the world chasing sexual idolatry, chasing money, chasing fame, fortune, you have no change in your heart and attitude. Did you see what Ezekiel 36 said? I will put my Spirit in you, and I will cause you to obey my commands. I'm going to do it. That's what he does. 
the Holy Spirit is the most powerful source of strength in all of the universe. He cleanses, regenerates, renews, washes. I love Hebrews 9. If the blood of bulls and goats sprinkled on a ceremonially unclean person can make them clean, how much more will the blood of Jesus through the eternal Spirit of God purify your conscience? How much more? So do you want it? Are you interested in it? And if you're a Christian and you believe you already have it, do you want to keep it? That's question number three. How do you get it? If you're here today and you're not a Christian, or you're a, you're a Christian by name only, you just go to church, you say you grew up in a Christian household, you call yourself a Christian, when you're sitting alone at night, when you're thinking truly, honestly about yourself, I don't really love the Bible that much. I don't really care about the church. I just kind of go every once in a while, etc., etc., etc. I don't really have a passion to share the good news of Jesus. It's not just I'm struggling in those things. I don't even desire them. I feel, I feel dead. What, that, that church in Sardis, that describes me. I'm spiritually dead. I might have started out okay, but I'm just dead. If that's you today, look at verse 3. Remember then what you received and heard. Remember then what you received and heard. How do you receive the Holy Spirit? I have good news for all of you. The most powerful source of strength and power in all the universe is a free gift purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. The only requirement is that you hear it and receive it. That's it. You don't have to pay God back for it. You don't have to do good works. He's just going to do the good works through you. Receive this to say, yes. I want all of my life in line and in step with this spirit. Receive it. Maybe look at your life and take inventory and say, you know, my current track and trajectory is not leading to much good. So receive the message of the gospel. That's what I think he's referring to here. How do you receive this power? You receive it by hearing that there's a God who created everything through his spirit. He made people. He started with Adam and he breathed life into him through his nostrils. Think how personal that description is. This personal, life-breathing God breathed life into all of us. You owe him everything. He's ruler and judge. And you gave him little to nothing ever since you've been born. That's called sin. It's called rebellion. It's called slapping God in the face. And you deserve to be punished by this God. But in his goodness and grace, he's the father who doesn't just punish and give justice, but he's the Father who forgives and loves mercifully. And this Father sent his Son, the perfect Son, full of the Holy Spirit. When he got baptized, the Spirit came down on a dove. You know why it was a dove? Because that language in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2 is that the Spirit hovered, and that's bird fluttering 
and flapping their wings language. It's telling you that the spirit that came on Jesus is the same spirit that created all the universe. And all the fullness of the spirit came on Jesus. And he lived a perfect life. And he was led by the spirit into the wilderness. And he passed every test that Satan gave him. And then he was led by the spirit to Jerusalem. And he died on a cross for sinners. And then he rose again by the power of the Holy Spirit. If you believe that what I just said is in fact true and you want to say this morning that Jesus is Lord, that's all that's required. You've heard, you've received and said, yes, Jesus is Lord. Apostle Paul says you can't even say that unless the Spirit of God is within you. So Christians, if you're here today and you believe this, notice that we're told to stay awake and alert and not fall asleep Notice that we're told to remember and to keep what we have received and to repent again and again until Jesus returns. Notice that Jesus' return will be like a thief in the night. Nobody sees a thief and says, oh yeah, I was planning for you to come here. It's surprising. I did not expect this. And you remember how I said every single one of these letters has a historical, significant, poignant word, and this is one of them, the thief in the night, two times in the history of Sardis before this letter was written. Two times, this impregnable, impenetrable force of a city, high up on a mountain, thought nobody could touch it. Two times, they had people crawl in on the backside because the soldiers were sleeping, saying nobody could get us. And two times, they were ransacked because soldiers were sleeping on the job. That brings the message home, doesn't it? Could you imagine if that was your city's history? And Jesus tells you, I'm going to be like those thieves that crawl in in the middle of the night. And when you're sleeping on the job, because you're so confident, feeling so good about yourself, feeling like nobody can touch you, I'm going to come at that very moment and you're going to be so surprised. Don't play games with God, Christians. We need to persevere to the end. Hear this word from God himself to you to help wake you up and persevere and finish to the end. We need reminded that God's Holy Spirit is available for you today. I want to close with this last thought. I love reading in first chapter of Ephesians that Paul's prayer to the Ephesian church, this is my prayer for us. He doesn't pray that they stay healthy. He doesn't pray for sick grandmas and grandpas and pray for your dogs and cats. You should pray for those things, by the way. I'm just kind of mocking the fact that we pray for a lot of things that Paul and the Bible don't pray for. And I think we need to hear that sometimes. What does Paul pray for? Read Ephesians 1, and he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened and that you would know, that you would know that the power that raised Jesus from the dead is available to you. Christian, do you know that this morning? Do you know that the very power that raised Jesus from the dead, has your heart been enlightened even this very morning as you've heard these words? Now look at any obstacle that you feel is in your life. In the same way that CJ started out the service of Zechariah 4, any mountain just going to become a flat plain for the Spirit. Not by might, not by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. Let's pray together. Our heavenly God,
We pray to you now in the name of Jesus through your Holy Spirit. And we want to give you thanks this morning for this incredible resource of strength, of power that cannot be matched. The world will at many times think that they defeat us and they will kill us and hurt us and make fun of us. And your word says that through that suffering we conquer. We have victory over the greatest obstacles that could ever come our way. What good news. Thank you, Jesus. So I pray for those who are hurting this morning. I pray that they'd be reminded of what power that they can receive. I pray that they'd be reminded of the gospel and hear it by faith. I pray that we as a church would hear what the Spirit says to the churches, including embassy. We thank you, God, that the Spirit does in fact speak. It's you who speaks to us. So grant us ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. At this time, we're going to take the bread and cup that's about to be passed around. As it's passed around, you should receive.